these last 12 months, I've, I've realized I need to be involved in certain things in the company just because it brings me joy. It may not be the best use of my time. I may not be leveraging everything to optimize the company to the nth degree, but there's something also about joy and personal health that will help our company even more the longer I'm around and engaged and, and inspired by what's happening. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Warren Buffett. Risk comes from not knowing what you are doing. Our guest today, Tom Gardner, has spent his career helping others understand the investing world and has built a world-class company in the process. He's the co-founder and CEO of The Motley Fool, a multimedia financial services company that advises investors through stock and personal finance services. He has co-authored numerous books with his brother, David Gardner, including The Motley Fool's Million Dollar Portfolio and Rule Breakers, Rule Makers. Tom, welcome. I'm excited to have you on the Elevate podcast. So great to be here, Bob. So in 1993, you started The Motley Fool to teach people about investing. How did you get that off the ground? And, and how did you first, how did anyone find it when you started? Well, the first thing about our company is that we did not intend to be a company. I think <laughs> David and I were both excited by the possibility of getting a job from what we were doing. And so uh, we had been taught by our father how to invest as kids. We had been prank calling radio stations throughout our childhood. Anytime there was an opportunity to interact with the world, we took advantage of it. And David was very early on in using different internet news groups or different ways to connect online. And so uh, there we were in 1993 with our love of investing as a game. We weren't taught investing as Greek alphanumerics or a hugely risky endeavor. It's a big gambling casino that where you can lose everything. We were taught to look around us and see the companies that we loved, the products we loved and buy a few shares. And that was kind of how our dad taught us about uh, long-term investing. And then the internet came along and we decided, hey, let's, let's just begin answering people's questions out here online. And America Online saw what we were doing and offered to invest in us if we started a company. And we had a short, funny negotiation and began in August of 1994, incorporated in August 1994, but really began in 1993 with the whole idea. But again, we were we started just thinking, imagine it, when we signed that first AOL contract, we were like, imagine if we could each make $15,000 a year, uh, then we could cobble together other jobs and that would be such a fun life. And then things uh, went much farther than we anticipated. I'm realizing sadly, now, you know, probably how old I am, that half the audience in this probably does not know who American Online is. <laughs> now, now that you say that, or never never saw a CD or heard that you got mail, we're, we're starting to reach that threshold. So what were you doing professionally when you started this? And it was, it was this a night and weekend side gig or was did you kind of quit your day job to do this? I was a graduate student in the master's program of linguistics at the University of Montana in Missoula, Montana. I had gone to high school and college on the East Coast. I graduated from Brown and I decided I wanted an adventure of some sort. I had thought I would go work out on the West Coast, but on the drive across country, I kind of fell in love with Montana. And I decided, oh, let me take some classes here and I'll teach ESL and 
And so that was that was kind of the, where I was. And David had worked for Louis Rukeyser, who is also somebody you wouldn't have known if you weren't watching PBS in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. But Louis Rukeyser was the long-term optimistic, you know, bullish perspective on investing on PBS. And David worked for his newsletter for about a year. And so we, David had just left that job and I was in graduate school and teaching as a teaching assistant. And this crept up on us as a fun thing to do on the side. And we were sending files back and forth, uh, which was unusual to be doing in the early 1990s, what we were writing and sharing and publishing online. So it really was can I add $10,000 to my life? I, you know, we're, we're working on something like this at The Motley Fool right now, which I'm pretty excited about. And it's trying to find ways to help people make that extra $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 a year. And that was exactly how we started The Motley Fool. It was like, hey, let's side gig to what we're, what we're doing and thinking about in life. But it just so happened David had left his full-time job and had more time to put toward it. And that, that really gave us the accelerator to cause it to become a company. You got lucky, Bob. What I'm saying is over and over again, every way you can imagine, we got lucky. Plus, our the cost of our business was just plugging two computers into the wall. I mean, there was zero cost. It didn't take any of We never had any need to invest. And when AOL invested the money they did, it was way, way, way beyond anything we'd ever thought could happen. Well, and when you started, did you wear the hats? Did you have that personality from the beginning? Or were you trying to, to seem more credible to the people you didn't know? Oh, we were definitely wearing the hats or if, if we didn't have the belled hats out of the gate in year one, we were certainly acting in a way as if we were wearing belled caps the whole time. And the only thing that we occasionally did to try and demonstrate credibility out there was refer to our offices as Motley Fool Global Headquarters, when in fact it was a small shack on the back of David's property that their cat had been living in that we cleaned up and put two computers in. That was Motley Fool Global HQ. Have you read about the guy, the reporter in London who, who started a, a rest? He wanted to prove that TripAdvisor reviews could be manipulated. He started a review, a restaurant called The Shed, which was his backyard shed and built it into the top, re- top <laughs> restaurant in London. That's so good. I always love the stories when people have applied a candidate to university that doesn't exist. I yeah. think that there are obviously some of those things could be pretty damaging out there. So, but there is so, there's so much more room for pranks to show the holes that exist out there in society that in this case, that TripAdvisor can be, <laughs> can be manipulated. It was a, a hysterical. I, I'll send you the article. It's, it's, he just, he said the menu is all made up about the mood you were in and people were dying to get in. People were leaving actual reviews. So their friends believe that they went there because it seemed to be so exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would, I would only add to the, I would, I would take too much of your time by going too deeply into this, but the spirit of that joke of the shed on TripAdvisor is very analogous to what really was the origin moment for The Motley Fool, which is that we played a very large prank online. Um, we created a company that didn't exist. It was a penny stock listed on the Halifax Canadian Stock Exchange, which doesn't exist. David and I were so <laughs> frustrated by a penny stock hyping that was going on, yeah. all the misleading people, that instead of trying to teach, we decided to jump in and play their game better than any of them had played it in a fictional way and it blew up and the wall street journal wrote an article about it. And that caused America online to get in touch with us and say, what are you all doing? And we might want to be involved in this. And would you think about starting a company? So it all started from a prank. 
Yeah, I, when I used to be more into trading stuff, I remember going to these Yahoo forums and these penny stocks, and it's unbelievable the promotion and the hype and the stuff that people would make up, make up in these things. So, but yeah, you do something that gets noticed, right? I, I mean, think that's the rule. So, can I summarize? You said your dad taught you investing, and it sounded like it was invest in what you know and understand. Was that the the core of his tenet? Yeah, I think it's very Peter Lynchian. Before yeah. Peter Lynch had published his first book, One Up on Wall Street, which is a great book. And it was build a portfolio and things that you'd love to learn about and that look fun and you enjoy. So are you distrustful of people and companies that you just can't understand what it is they actually do? I don't know if I'm distrustful. <laughs> I probably should be. I skeptical? Should, I should be more I should be more skeptical than I am. I, I actually feel humbled by it more than I probably should yeah. because I do think it's it's the challenge of the company to explain to all their stakeholders exactly what they're doing. So I should have a higher standard for them, but I do generally avoid them. I mean, it's a lesson that everyone, or maybe I'll just say I, it's a lesson I relearn over and over again. Like, did I really deeply understand that? Um, and so, yeah, over time, you do 26 years into the Motley Fool, start to learn what is your circle of competence, what is the zone you should be investing in more and more. And uh, there, so there are a few companies that I'm following closely at all that just seem highly confusing to me. You know, one of them is WeWork. Another of them is Uber. Uber's big one-time charge here coming out of the public markets for, oh, it was so expensive to do this IPO. And we had all these other costs associated with it. So that's why we lost X number of billions of dollars. I looked through the accounting that I was like, I do not understand that company. And WeWork, all of the governance issues, self-dealing. I mean, WeWork needs to have a reset right now if they're going to try and take their company public. So generally in those situations, if confusion is right in front of you, there's probably a lot more confusion right behind that. What, what's your belief? Should companies make money? We, we seem to be entering the third phase of disbelief. I, I've lived through the first two um, and we seem to be entering the, the third one of, of disbelief. I can't say, I can't say that if a company's not making money, I wouldn't invest in it because there are a number of companies that are software companies that I am invested in. But I would say that if they're not making money yet, we would want to see a few things clear evidence that management leadership was engaged in a very, very long-term gain. So not a lot of executive turnover. Uh, number two, you would want to see that the costs are probably limited to marketing and people, R&D and marketing and people, because the more there is a factory, the more there is product and inventory, the more burdens there are in the contracts that there are contractors across Uber, et cetera. I think, the, company, the only companies I'm interested in that aren't making money are companies that have written software applications that right. can be used simultaneously by millions of people or organizations, and they're just pouring a lot in marketing to gain share. But you can see, like Shopify, that they have the potential to be extremely profitable. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. 
I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. And, and you mentioned before, so you've worked for your brother with your brother now 26 for years for, for your brother. Well, yeah. Brothers, okay, good. Yes. <laughs> Most people don't have the chance to collaborate with a sibling. They don't that have long. that chance. Yeah. Were you guys close before you did this? How, how has working together affected your personal relationship? Are you like, is it enough once you're out, out of work? Is it okay if I start? crying during this answer at any point? Absolutely. Okay, good. Um, well, David and I have always been very close, but very close as children growing up. Then naturally, we went to different schools. You know, there's those gaps that emerge. But I do think that The Motley Fool came into our lives and brought us back together in an extremely close way, obviously, in a day-to-day way. And we've been doing this for 26 years together. I'll say that probably the most important thing that we've learned, we learned in the last couple of years, from some outside uh, family business consultants that we worked with, the authors of a book called The Partnership Charter for anyone out there who's trying to strengthen the partnership of their business or as entrepreneurs or in any any organizational capacity. It's a great book and great concepts. And I would just say that David and I both needed to learn how to be fully assertive of what we believe. Like not, not don't hold anything back. I need to hear your 10 out of 10. Do you think I'm the worst person at the company? You need to tell me and okay. then simultaneously fully accommodating or fully in listening mode as well. And that's a beautiful place to get in any of our relationships that we can be totally assertive and fully capable of listening to the reaction and open to the reaction so that they can be fully assertive. So that was a little tool that we learned. And I think what David and I found in that process is there were certain things that we were avoiding talking about because our brotherly relationship matters so much to us. Our family matters so much to us and we have so much fun outside of work that there were certain things that we weren't tougher topics that we were kind of avoiding and we learned through that process to be uh, more direct and more accommodating in, in finding a, a compromise and then being better at collaborating together so that's a, that's been our, our company has had an incredible last few years and i do think a measure of that is coming from the work that we did to be more assertive with each other well, I'll cry. It all t- 
<laughs> I was going to say, it sounded like you made it, but it, it takes work. <laughs> well, you talked about sort of, you know, being authentic. So the thing that's fascinating to me about Monthly Fool is that investing in finance is really topics synonymous with Wall Street and buttoned up and seriousness. And you guys have really kind of blown all of that away with just having a lot of fun, creating your own game, creating all your rules and and also how you run your company and your culture. I mean, this is, it's rare in finance. It might not even be rare. I, I can't even think of a, a, another example. So tell me a little bit about how that evolved. I mean, clearly you guys were being you, but you were also going into an institution where people need to take you you seriously. So how did this all work in the beginning and how has it all worked as you've continued to grow? That's a great question. Well, I'll just say from a cultural standpoint and growing our company and how we work together, um, I had the opportunity when I was just 16 years old to work with a group of people and start a summer camp, a co-ed summer camp in Maine. My high school football coach had run camps in Maine. And so it wasn't a new thing for him, but we were able to build this camp from the ground up. And one of the things that he was sort of table stakes. It was like 120 campers would come in for eight weeks. And every few weeks you would get together in the evening and talk about every single camper. So you'd meet at like 8 p.m. and the night would end at 12. And it was fun, you know, you'd be sitting around outside, campfires, all the rest, but you would talk about every single camper. And I just remember thinking while we were doing that, that's really incredible. We're giving that time to this. And that's been a core principle for us at The Motley Fool. So I think culturally, to get very high level of engagement from everyone that's come to the pool is to really demonstrate any organization to show that you really care about the individual. And that's hard to do as you grow, but still very possible if you commit to it. Then from the standpoint of being disruptive and different in a stodgy category, I mean, I'll say that how beneficial it has been that the internet arrived yeah. <laughs> because now we have constant contact with, well, we have 30 million people coming to our site every month. And so we have continuing contact with them. We can explain our principles to them and share with them why we think that somebody who wears a suit and presents things very well with charts and graphs, but doesn't show fees in a very clear uh, way is probably not your best friend out there in finance. Even if they seem very credible, they're probably not working for you. Um, and that unfortunately is true across financial services. Even a friend of mine who I was meeting and talking through their finances the other day who has credit card debt, I was looking at their credit card statement trying to figure out what their APR is. Like, what's the interest rate on this? And it is like, it cannot be easily calculated by looking at it. And so that the problem for the industry is that once you've built your businesses up on that methodology, the tidal wave of transparency from the internet is very hard to deal with. And it gives us a lot of running room to be contrary, to be unconventional, and to convince people that it's better to be a fool and to look absurd and to get (laughs) it right than it is to try and present a polished approach that's very self-interested. And you said we've blown things away, or I think that language, and I'll just say, I I mean, this is like every every football, every coach or every leader will say this to inspire everyone, but I I mean it in my heart. This is a very true statement. 26 years in, Our company is in the top of the second inning of what we have to do. We've had a long, crazy journey that I won't bore you with, but it's been a series of very high highs and some painful moments along the way as well. And we've finally gotten to a place where we're wholly owned. We have the capital. And now I think you're going to see over the next 10 years what The Motley Fool has always wanted to be. And it's going to be even more disruptive and even more fun and I hopefully even more positively impactful for people. So 
I'm more excited now than, than when we started it, but it's, it's been a fun experience thus far. What are your company's core values? Uh, we're actually in the process of rewriting those, and there's no one whose shoulders that falls on more than my <laughs> shoulders. So, Bob, I don't know if anyone for our company contacted you and asked you to ask that question to me, but we're reviewing our core values in the context of Amazon's leadership principles, which I think every leader should read those. Obviously, they created a company that's worth you know hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, that's the commercial side, but obviously Amazon is incredibly customer first. Everyone should look at Amazon's leadership principles. Uh, John Mackey, the founder of Whole and CEO of Whole Foods, is on our board. And so when Whole Foods was acquired by Amazon, he was at our board meeting saying, these principles, I wish we'd had these or something like this at Whole Foods in the beginning. So we're in the process of rewriting them, but I'll say two things about our values that will remain with us. Um, one of them is that we have every single Motley Fool employee add their own value. So that's was an idea emerging from a team searching core values, which has been brilliant because if you have to name your own core value, that means you need to look at the core values. So you're going to get a deeper understanding of them. And then you get your own personal expression of who you are. And of course, the Molly Fool people are going to be very funny, uh, very, <laughs> very surprising in the way they present their value and what their value is. So I think everyone should be able to bring their own value to work. And then the second one I'll say is you're definitely going to see something about contrariety or unconventional thinking or yeah. um, looking at the world differently. Uh, but, but I mean, our, our core values at this point are swirl around the concepts of honesty and optimism and teamwork and innovation and being competitive. Um, but they're going from caterpillar to butterfly, hopefully, right now. So has company culture always been important to you from the beginning? Or is that something that as you scaled, you had trials and tribulations with and then realized that it was important? Uh, it's always been important. It's always been important. It's partially, it's always been important because again, we weren't thinking about starting a company. So I, I don't look at our, our individuals or teams as assets that need to be productive. I want them to be productive for their own life and their own happiness. And of course, part of their happiness will be the success of our company. But so culture has always been foundational at the Motley Fool, but we've learned so much and we've made so many mistakes. And I'll just provide an example of one tool that is an amazing tool that has had a bigger impact than any tool that we've used. And it's called CultureAmp. And CultureAmp is, is, yeah, it's a survey tool that allows us to see down at a granular level of five people. So you're remain anonymous. We can see how female software developers who've been with the company five to seven years are doing versus male software developers that have been at the company five to seven years and any permutation slicing and dicing that you can think of. And therefore we can see that even though we have today 89% productivity and engagement and satisfaction score at the Motley Fool, which is our all time high and which is a wonderful number in a world where it's closer to 30% for the average company. So we're at 89%, that's great. But within that 89%, there are so many problems to solve. And that tool helps us go in and find a small team of 11 people that don't feel they're fairly compensated or haven't gotten the tools they need to move forward or don't have the team leader that's helping them grow and develop. And we would not have seen that without that tool. So, so our company's gotten a lot better because of it. Yeah, there's been an explosion, probably a little too much for some companies in all of these cloud-based culture tools that really allow smaller companies to have this kind of ERP software that you know has only been available to larger companies, I think, in the past. Yes, and I do agree that it can go too far, although I also sometimes say and think 
wouldn't we all at least like the option of having our own Olympic coach? Like we were a gymnast and somebody cares yeah. so much about our form and our practice and our diet and our everything to try and optimize. And of course it can go too far. And I think it really has to be a choice for the individual rather than you're obligated and you're almost being surveilled as you move around your office. But I think what of course happens when you find great tools is everyone, people want to opt into them and they want to grow and they want to learn more about themselves. I think that the advisory board to Stanford Business School, which I think numbers in like a few hundred people was surveyed years ago and asked, what's the number one trait that demonstrates great leadership? And it was the pursuit of self-awareness. That yeah. It's hard to be a great leader unless you're avidly pursuing self-awareness. I, I always say at our company, if someone could give me a test that could produce with 100% certainty of variable before we hired, and, and self-awareness would be the one that, you know, if it was guaranteed that I would bet on the most. So what would be an example? What's something you can tell us about you that we wouldn't know otherwise? About me? <laughs> I'm turning the tables on you. Yeah, but in terms of being self-aware or oh, just yeah, something? No, just something you've learned about yourself in the last year. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I work with a couple of different coaches and, and one of the things that um, I've learned in the last year is, is really, there, which is a paradox of my <laughs> role, is that I need a sort of a natural introvert. I need sort of quiet and thinking time when what a lot of people want from me is, is FaceTime. And while mm -hmm. I love giving it and in the moment i was talking to someone about this yesterday like i'll you know if we had eight of these podcasts in one day i would love every one of them and then at five o'clock i would probably do a face plant when i got wow. home and couldn't you know couldn't speak to anyone so um i have to be conscious about creating creating that space because that's that's when i do the stuff that's rewarding for me right versus yeah. the stuff that where people are are wanting my help with it i, I interviewed uh the founder and CEO, co-founder and CEO of Shopify, Toby Luca, who's... Yeah, I just listened to the How I Built This podcast with him. It was phenomenal. Yes, I ha I'm looking forward to listening to that. I haven't had a chance to yet. And he's, he's one of my favorite uh, leaders in the world. And it was interesting what he said to me in the last interview. I don't have... It's, I'm paraphrasing, but it was essentially exactly what you said. He said something along the lines of these last 12 months, I've, I've realized I need to be involved in certain things in the company just because it brings me joy. It may not be the best use of my time, I may not be leveraging everything to optimize the company to the nth degree, but there's something also about joy and personal health that will help our company even more the longer I'm around and engaged and, and inspired by what's happening. So I guess on the introverted side for our company, one of the things we learned with the open office dynamic that we have is like, that's not necessarily great for the introvert Yeah, and uh, finding more quiet spaces and more quiet times. I'm an extreme extrovert, so we're good partners. Yeah. However, as I age, I find myself getting more reclusive and enjoying my alone time more and more. So I'm changing. <laughs> I, I would have guessed that. <laughs> but, but all right, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back with Tom. In 2004, Mike Zani and his partner started a search fund. A search fund is where you raise money with a leadership team already in place and then look for a company to buy. Well, here's what Mike learned the first time he bought a company. Bob, we were really pretty good at the strategy stuff, and we were good at the financial side of things, knowing what to pay for a company. But when we finally bought the company, figuring out how to get the right people and the right roles and managing them was really hard, surprisingly hard, and we sucked at it. So Mike and his team used the predictive index to help them fix their people problems. Then when they bought and ran two more companies, they used the predictive index again. 
In fact, they became so enamored with the predictive index that you guessed it, they bought the company. Yeah, we bought a 60-year-old technology company. I have to pinch myself. You know, I, I get to run a company that helps people solve their people problems. Designing teams, hiring, inspiring managers. And when it comes down to it, almost all business problems come down to people problems. So if you're trying to figure out how to get more out of your people, I'd recommend you go to predictiveindex.com elevate and request a demo of their product. That's predictiveindex.com elevate. When you started your business, I'm sure you didn't dream about all those admin tasks like drafting proposals and contracts and tracking down payments. Of course you didn't, and that's why you need HoneyBook. HoneyBook's an innovative online management tool that organizes your client communications, booking, contracts, and invoices all in one place. It makes it really easy to run your business better. Professional templates, e-signatures, and built-in automation keep everything on track and make you look good. They can even consolidate services you already use, such as QuickBooks, Google Suite, Excel, and MailChimp. And that's why it's the number one choice for client and business management for freelancers and business owners. And right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off when you visit honeybook.com elevate. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. So go to honeybook.com elevate for 50% off your first year. That's honeybook.com elevate. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right, we're back with Tom Gardner. So this is the question I really I, I want to get into with you. When we first met a few months back, um, you shared something you did with your company, which I never heard before, which I thought was fascinating. So you had two different days. It was ask for a raise day and, and, and ask for a pay cut day. Can you walk through the, how you came to these ideas, uh, how each of them went, what you learned from it? Because I, I just think there's a lot for companies to learn from what you did there. Um, well, I'm going to disappoint you on the second one because we have yet to run, but we will run uh, Ask for a Pay Cut Day. Oh, really? You t- I, 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 so you've theorized. Okay. So, but yeah, you, 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 had a very, you had a strong theory behind it. So, yes, um, yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. So, Ask for a Raise Day. Well, um, I'm an idea person. So, in my various Myers-Briggs-like Colby synergist disc, um, you know, self-awareness tests, I show up as wanting to innovate in a collaborative way. Um, so... I'm often dreaming up things and sharing them with people. I have no ability to implement them. I have no ability to build a plan um, or great ability to build a plan. And I, and I often show up late for meetings, um, et cetera. 
So I'm ideas and people. That's pretty much who I am walking around in the world. So I'm kind of taking in data, looking around me, using my intuition, uh, reading about other companies constantly, um, and taking the best ideas I can and bringing them to our company. That's my role. And there was a collection of different things that I observed. One of them, men ask for raises more often than women. Extroverts ask for raises more often than introverts. People view their compensation system at their organization as vague and you know, ambiguous and, and there are a lot of questions and Whole Foods, John Mackey being on our board, um, Whole Foods has ran a program pretty much since inception at Whole Foods where everyone can see everyone's compensation. You can call and ask and see on the network what people are paid. So there's a tremendous amount of transparency. We don't do that at The Motley Fool, but that, that informs my thinking as well. And so all of these different little ideas are forming or little data points are forming and I wake up one day and realize, well, why don't we invite everyone to ask for a raise? That seems like something that would be so beneficial, even though it's very contrary. Um, and you might think a company wouldn't want that. God, that would be deadly expensive if everyone came and asked for a raise on a day. Either it would end up costing you a lot or you'd end up with a lot of very unhappy people. But it's something that matters to people. And so let's, let's go through the idea. And the second idea I had around it was, what if we actually pay them to do it? Um, so in our case, we paid everyone, if you asked for a raise, you were paid $200 instantly just for asking for the raise. So that would give an incentive for somebody to step forward who might be introverted or in the case of male, female, um, for whatever variety of reasons that's happening, that they would feel like very welcome to do so, invited to do so, encouraged to do so, rewarded for doing so. Then we felt, well, if this works out, people will learn about our compensation system. So they will become less skeptical or suspicious that it's unfair. They will see that there's a team that's genuinely trying to do what is right in every single case, but it's hard. If somebody is in job A that is rewarded at this level and they have asked to go to job B, which is a smaller role for reasons that they want to pursue that, like how do we move their compensation down without discouraging them? What's the best way? Should it happen instantly? Should it happen over time? So we could pull the curtain back and show everyone all the work that's being done and just by people seeing how much work is being done, they would they would be more thankful and they would be more understanding that there are difficult moments in time where things are not as clear and there isn't as much precedent in our company and we're trying to figure it out together. So that, that would be very helpful. Plus, if they came and asked for a raise and they could see the compensation system more clearly, they would have ideas for how to improve it, which would be great. And finally, if they came and they asked for a raise, they would feel valued by their company. That we really cared and we wanted them to be rewarded for their work. So all of those things played out. Now there was one terrible part of the idea if I've made it sound <laughs> wonderful. And that is I called it because I always like a little good marketing tagline. I called it ask for a raise day and it should have been asked for a raise year <laughs> or yeah, ask yeah. for a raise quarter. Um, thankfully the team did restructure in a way that we bought weeks and weeks for people to come forward. Um, but I'd say about half of our company came forward. We might ask like, why didn't more, well, some people had just gotten raises. Other people felt that they were already well compensated and they didn't feel like just getting $200 to do it. But you know, the nice thing that emerged from it is the half of the company that did come forward, they all had to think more deeply about their own career and ask themselves where they were going, why, and why they felt they should be paid more or want to understand if they could be paid more. Um, so I think it was a great success for us. And the data in CultureAmp shows that we made a double digit gain in people believing in our compensation system. And that's great. Um, and the idea of ask for a pay cut is just 
um, that sounds horrible. <laughs> no, no one would ever want to do that unless you knew that the structure of that Astro Pay Cut month um, was we want you to ask to be paid less in order that you can do a little bit more of what you love to do. So tell us what you love to do that you're not getting to do and that you're willing to trade money for. So as you can see from even how I'm speaking now, I don't have it fully mapped out, but I would like people to take a $50 pay cut in order to not have to work Friday afternoons, let's say, or okay. to work from home two days a week. Because I believe that when we give people the opportunity to work exactly as they want to, as long as they care about the mission, they are living up to the purpose of the company and they love working with the people and for all of our members, the more freedom and autonomy you give them in their daily work, the more output, the sustainability, more higher, longer tenure, all things will become better. And so that's the idea of Ask for a Pay Cut. I mean, we, and it comes originally from a guy named Raj Peshawaria, who's written some wonderful books, was the chief learning officer at Morgan Stanley and Coca-Cola. And when asked while visiting our company, what is the slice of happiest people? What data do you have that shows who are the happiest people of the companies you worked at? And he said, there are people who took a pay cut to do what they really love to do in life. So that's kind of the origin of that. Right. So it's not really the pay cut. It's that that framework is a, a force function to think about what it is that they are doing that they don't want to do or that they would give up in the name of, of happiness or satisfaction. Yes. Our, the, our, the head of our people team, Lee Burbage, who has been in that role for many, many years and been in the company for two decades, has said that anytime somebody asks for more money, the first question to follow up with is, what's not working for you? Because usually underneath that, not always, but usually underneath it is, I need to be paid more if you're going to, if I have to keep doing this. We have, we have somebody, for example, the company who somewhat recently is highly strategic, brilliant, having a huge impact on our company. Because of that, he has collected a tremendous number of administrative tasks. Because in order to have such a large impact across so many people, it then piles up so many responsibilities for those people. And that is not this person's area of interest or enthusiasm. And so how can we make somebody highly strategic, highly impactful, without the burden of things that they don't do well and don't want to do well. Uh, well, we could just pay them more and tell them you got to do it. Or we could actually pay them less or just pay them what we're paying them and saying, we're going to take that off your plate. Right. I mean, the irony is most people can't step back to do what this is sort of where most, I see a lot of midlife crises. They can't take step back to do something that they would like to do more when the data shows they're probably actually going to earn more if they do that, right? So let's take your example and say, I say, you know what, Tom, I want to, I want to, want a five hundred dollar pay cut, and I don't want to work Fridays. Well, if Fridays are so important to me and and to my family, I might become much more productive <laughs> in those four days and create better outcomes as an employee and be actually worth more to the company you know, than it, than it was in five days because I really centered around what was important and and made some better decisions with my time. Completely right. I completely agree. I would say that if we're adults working in a company of adults and we've set up the mission and the values of the organization correctly, then the people that are coming to work really care about the work that they're doing. It matters to them. And they're not looking for ways to opt out, cut corners, or be an opportunist and get paid for things they don't deserve to be paid for. I'm not saying that there isn't a fraction of people who in different situations in life might behave that way. I'm saying that once that becomes kind of the organizational imperative and everyone understands the system, then you can say things like, 
we have no sick. Po- the only sick policy we have at the company is if you're sick, stay home. Stay home indefinitely until you're better. We don't want you to come in and sneeze something infectious. Um, number two, we're not going to track your vacation days. If you need to take eight weeks off, take your eight weeks off. We trust you. Just make sure your work is covered. Most of the people at the Motley Fool use that freedom around vacation policy, not to take extended trips around the world and not do any work for long stretches of time. They're using it within the hours of uh, a week where they want to be there for their child or they have some unexpected thing that's come along or they want to do yoga in the afternoon. That gives them another uh, jump for their evening of their life. Whatever it is, if you give people that freedom in the right system, they're not going to abuse it. And if instead you restrict it because you want to protect the company against the tiny fraction of people who will abuse it, you're punishing your highest performers, which you never want to do. You're punishing your most loyal, most dedicated people. What you want to do is give those people total freedom and set the model for everyone else about how to behave uh, and, and how to protect that culture that they care so much about. And the productivity goes way up. I think if we mandated at the Motley Fool, well, we would never mandate. We, we try never to mandate something, so I shouldn't say that. But I think if we encourage people to work four days a week instead of five, our output and our performance across all of our key goals would go up. So I, I do think that prioritization and freedom in the right system are very powerful. Do you, I mean, you have a great culture. It sounds like you have a lot of psychological safety, open honesty. Do you struggle when people come from other companies and, and they kind of have some PTSD of, of that situation for them to be, to really believe that they can be open and honest in your organization? I'm going to give you a better answer if you ever ever welcome me back onto your podcast a year or two from now, because I think we're going to be doing more high-level hires than we've ever done. Yeah. Because we're starting to hit scale now. And the finance world is not known for a bunch of really great places to work. There is is a sad truth. I think for us, a lot of people we hire, we are hiring earlier in their career right now, and and they're coming into the environment. And But certainly some of the higher-level hires we've had, I, I think... Yeah, it's it's a different experience for them, and uh, probably our board is the best representation of wow, what's happening here? How does this all work? But I think we have we learn a lot from them and get a lot of support from them too. We have someone on our one of our board members in Canning World, and he he laughs now about it years into it. But he we were we were open book, and he just can't. <laughs> get comfortable with it. So like, wait, you share the stuff with people? It's it's very funny. But, you know, he's actually, I think he's seeing the market move over the years. But, I mean, he, he looked like he was going to have a heart attack when we first told him this. And and I think there, there probably is a great book and there probably is an awesome uh, set of articles online that I need to read about preparing board members for the companies of the future. Because yeah. that, that gap is broadening. Many, many board members come aboard toward the end of their career, their full-time career, and join a company that's innovating at an incredibly rapid pace. And in order to move at that pace and be positively disruptive uh, in the world, there has to be a lot of trust. And you've got to get as many people on the same page as quickly as possible. And that pretty much requires an open book. Because if people are trying to guess what the financials look like as you're making reinvestment decisions, you're going to lose a month of your year company-wide for not having that out front of everyone. Yeah. And I think a thing for leaders to understand too, is there is a general trend towards openness and open information and, and, and stuff that you don't want to be open might be made it without you wanting it. Like someone just told me, and we all know about Glassdoor, but there are now these kind of 
dark web that are moving the regular web sites where in large organizations, people lay out the whole organization, what people make, you know, who's a terrible leader, who's a good leader. So, so that everyone will have the with information. So I, I just think you should assume that most things these days in, in, in the world we live in will become public and use that to your advantage rather than trying to fight it. I agree with that. I think absolutely key phrase right there is use it to your advantage. And I do think that a total loss of privacy across our world is, is not all good. Yeah. Um, and I think that in the way that it could be unfortunate for an organization to see that everything was laid out outside the bounds of their organization, it would feel uncomfortable for anyone going to work knowing that they were under full surveillance while in the office. Um, so there is, there is like a, a compromise or a balance point but I don't know if it can ever be struck. We, we may just simply have lost all privacy. And you're right. It's better to go and assume that. Way, way better to assume that than, than to be surprised by it. All right. Well, last, last question for you. Um, what is a personal or professional mistake uh, that you learned the most from? And it could be singular or, or my, for many people, it's a repeated one. So uh, my core value has never been this, but sometimes I think of myself as, so I was born in the year of the monkey. Chinese year of the monkey. I think I have makes sense. The traits of a monkey. I'm very curious. <laughs> I'm I'm curious. I'm I'm kind of reckless. I in some ways. And then and then if if you think of my leadership style, you would put me on a motorcycle. So my assistant, who's really my work partner and who's really the boss of my life, has said, "Yeah, you're like a monkey on a motorcycle." And so that's kind of how I'm cruising along. What that can mean is that I'm I'm actually out ahead. I'm scouting out ahead. Well, work-wise, but how do I communicate that, what I'm seeing and what, um, where the world's going? And that communication piece, I thought was, I mean, I have so many mistakes. I, I just selected this one. I thought that communication piece was about putting on a good presentation and getting feedback. But that communication piece for our company where we are and the rate at which we're growing, communication becomes much more about alignment and it's about earned alignment not forced alignment and in order to really get that alignment it means having forums and many in any big strategic change a monkey on a motorcycle is not going to lead strategic change in a large organization uh, we're still a very small company of about 400 employees but we but we are hiring fast now and growing and i i just think some of the mistakes i've made in the last three to five years I think if you look back strategically, I was right. The idea was right. That was a great idea. That was a great way to think about where we were going. You were out ahead, but there was a lot of wear and tear to try and get that thinking implemented. And if there had been more structured communication and alignment and making sure that everyone's voice is heard and that all the ideas are refined and then there are plans put around them and tests and et cetera. So it's, it's much more of a systematic systems level approach and that doesn't come to me naturally. So thankfully, I found a number of awesome people <laughs> that are that are helping me because I would probably keep making that mistake. In fact, in small ways, I do make that mistake every week. Well, thank you for sharing that. So, how how can people get a hold of you or learn more about the Motley Fool and your writing? Where 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 are all things, uh, Tom? Well, I would I would say fool.com for the Motley Fool. I'm pretty active behind the scenes anonymously on our Twitter. <laughs> on our Twitter account. So if you're, if you're following our Twitter account, you're probably seeing um, some of my thinking out there and LinkedIn. Um, I'm a LinkedIn influencer. I haven't been that active in the last year, but I, I think the Motley Fool 
is uh, broadening what we're bringing to the world. For most of our 26 years, we've been stock market investors, but now we're starting to move out and give advice around real estate and give advice around for entrepreneurs. Uh, we just launched a service called The Blueprint, which is helping business leaders of small companies find software applications that work most effectively for them. So I think there's going to be a lot of Motley Fool coming out in the world. And our purpose is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer in everything that we do. And so I don't know that anyone should really be out there looking for what Tom Gardner thinks. I think the best thing you can find is something that we have to offer that would help you. And fool.com uh, is the best place for that. All right. Well, Tom, thanks for sharing your story with us today. You're clearly doing what you love and, and making a difference doing that for both your customers and employees. Well, thank you. And uh, it was an honor to be on your podcast. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Tom and fool.com on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Before you go, if you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and the content that you enjoy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can just select the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down to the bottom and leave your review. It's that easy. It only takes a few seconds and would be much appreciated. Thank you again for your continued support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.